Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. She is an anti-poverty activist, CEO of FPWA, uh, the one and only Jennifer Jones. Austin, keep it going. Yes. Hey, hey, where's the applause now? I need the applause now. It's there. It was was, was nonstop. It just kept going. It kept going. Uh, I take the love whenever, however I can get it. You deserve it. You deserve it. You've survived a lot um, to be here. So let me just thank the Lord. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with her story, consider it pure joy. Uh, And you can follow her at Pure Joy JJA. And the pure joy is that she's breathing and living uh, diagnosed uh, with uh, a, dis- a cancer that was supposed to take her out. Um, she's still here. So there's that. And uh, I'm glad. Living with purpose. There you go. Uh, does that does that change when you get that kind of diagnosis? Does it, does it mm, change how you move in the world when you find out doctors are telling you or you are out so you didn't even know all of the th- things that were happening. Uh, but when you come out of that and then you're yeah. clear how does that shift how you move? So let me say um, the ordeal that I went through, I believe I went through for a reason and a purpose, right? And um, and I learned a lot through it. And my fervent prayer uh, pretty much every day of my life is that I never forget the horrific ordeal that I experienced because I believe that it, it prepared, it changed me and prepared me. Somebody once said to me, you must feel, and, and Drew, what happened, I mean, I'm not going to give you the details, but I was given a 99% chance of death, was diagnosed with a disease on Wednesday, uh, mm. in a coma by Friday, was, my husband was told I was going to die t- within the next 48 hours, and I survived. And mm. uh, sometimes, and then I needed, I went on this, like, nation, nationwide search for a, a donor to give me a bone marrow transplant. Somebody once said to me, you must feel like you've been given a second chance in life. And my response was, I said, not really. It feels more like a promotion. Amen. Right? And what I mean by that is that when you go through something that is so terrifying, so traumatic, uh, instantly, you know, you know, transforming your world and turning it upside down, and you see the blessings, you know, just unfolding to kind of help you try to keep living and keep carrying on, you better be changed and you better realize and appreciate that if you are still here, it's because you're here for a purpose. That's yeah, right. I am changed. I am changed. And uh, people tell me that I run too much and I do too much, but I firmly believe that God uh, has kept me here for a purpose. And so I better live that purpose as fully as I possibly can. Otherwise, he might yank me. So I'm going <laughs> to say that the fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. So I, I, I that's awesome. All right. Absolutely. We like Drew. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, so what, what can we help you deal with right now? That, that you, know, you what I, the what problem that we need right to solve. Now, poverty related. I think that people need to be leaning in and paying attention right now to this moratorium that has been extended concerning uh, rent evictions, appreciating that it is only extended for a finite period for another, I guess, three months. Uh, And what they need to be leaning in on uh, is the fact that this moratorium is intended to help many people of color. Uh, You know, disproportionately as COVID impacted many people with respect to health challenges and job loss, it has impacted people when it comes to 
uh, staying in their homes and uh, you know being at risk of being evicted and being homeless. And so we've got this moratorium, but it's not uh, for a long period of time. It may be challenged legally because uh, the Supreme Court already held back in June that the federal government, that the executive branch did not have the authority to impose a moratorium and to extend it. Uh, and they said that the Congress should do it, but the Congress hasn't acted. So Biden, under a lot of pressure, did act. He got the CDC to extend it until October, but it's just until October. And there have already been lawsuits that have been filed challenging the extension. So I want people to pay attention to that and pay attention to the fact that there's some money out there right now to help if you are at risk of losing your, your home. If you're a renter and you're at risk of losing, there's $46 billion that was allocated as part of economic stimulus. And people have only taken advantage of $3 billion of that $46 billion. It's like one of those best kept secrets, right? And uh, our people need to know that it's out there. And that if you've lost income, you know, if your expenses are greater than you can pay right now because of COVID, and you can show the tie, you can get this money if you just take advantage of it. And a lot of the data is showing that a lot of us aren't even aware of it. So that's what I want people to know and be sent it off. Absolutely. And the dance that we got going on right now with the government around it and other things. Oh yeah, yeah, that part. Yeah, but it's part of the American Rescue Plan Act, right? And it's it's right. literally funds in there allocated, billions of dollars set aside for it. And I I did a video on it to try to to educate people, but mm -hmm. I guess I do a better job putting that out there. But yeah, it's out there. We just gotta know uh, we gotta know how to how to access it. You're right. It's out there, and people are about to get like they're about to get bumped out of their homes. I mean, you know, the minute that the moratorium expired in states and localities across this country, counties, the landlords started going and. Volunteer big people. I want to wow. ask a question uh, that may be uh, sensitive, but, you know, for the last year, almost 18 months, you know, there's kind of been this moratorium, right? And people who live someplace, even if, you know, a lot, not everybody, you know, lost their job during COVID. Most people kept their jobs. As a matter of fact, um, there are more jobs available now than not. And in, in addition to that, people were getting checks. Right. Uh, a lot of people are getting relief checks during COVID. A lot of people got their stimulus checks during COVID. Um, to me, I just feel like part of it, poverty is not people. In, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this, Jennifer, um, say for the children who did not ask to come here, who are subject to their parents choices. Some of these adults are not um, making good choices. Mm -hmm. And and as a result now, they, you know, then it becomes dire straits and an emergency when you don't have to be Ray Charles to see that this is not going to last. You, you're not going to be able to live somewhere forever for free. My mother used to always, you ain't going to be able to live nowhere for free. So I had to pay rent when I stayed at mm -hmm. home. You know what I'm saying? But mm -hmm. after I got back from college and I did so gladly. Right. But I feel like these, a lot of people are not uh, having any kind of foresight and vision and they got these stimulus checks and now they got a chat child tax credit coming in every month for their children and they're not applying it in a way. Now I know it's, it's very expensive to be poor. 
And and there's a wonderful piece in Randall Robinson's The Debt where he talks about the the expensiveness of of poverty, whether it's not having a washing dryer and having to take a bus mm-hmm. to go wash your clothes. You got to take a taxi sometimes to get your groceries and it's expensive. But I also think there's some choices here that we aren't really talking about. And I feel like even not going after the money that's there. Like if you really about this life, you know, the money is there to take care of the things. Oh, yeah. Look, look, no pushback on me for me on that. I agree with you wholeheartedly that there are a lot of us out here who are making choices that are not well informed and we're not seeking to find either to gain the information to make the most informed decisions. You and I um, have a mutual uh, associate, uh, um, Jacquette Timmons, who is uh, a financial, she's a she was, she you know, studied finance, was down on Wall Street, and has written books about financial management. She holds herself out, I love this, not as a financial planner, but a financial behavior, I think she calls it a financial behavioralist. Behavioralist, and yes. She, right, and she says, you don't manage your money, you manage your choices regarding money. And that's where people miss the mark. What are the choices and decisions that you're making in the immediate and how will they impact you in the long term? This child tax credit, as an example, you got Democrats all over the country talking about how this is a game changer and it's going to bring, you know, like 40, 50 percent of people up out of poverty. Eighty million people may come up out of poverty. Right. Not really so much if you're not managing the money wisely, you know, an additional, you know, if you got three children. And they're under the age of five. That amounts to an additional $1,800 a year. That's not going to bring you up out of poverty. Just in and of itself, getting the additional money. Now, if you maybe make some choices about how you use that money, that might help you, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, if you make choices to save that money because you were you were doing well or you were getting by otherwise, that can help you. But if you just see another another $1,800 in your pocket and now it's time to go to Disney World, mm-hmm. right? You know, go go hang in Vegas. That's not going that's not going to lift you up. And so it is it's all about choices and some of us choose to take advantage of all that the system has to offer to get ahead. Some of us choose to take advantage of just to kind of chill and some of us don't take advantage at all. Uh oh. So you know, the, wait, hold on, The Bible, <laughs> the Bible says there's always going to be poor. So, <laughs> but the Bible didn't mean it. Jesus nah. didn't mean it that way. How do you beat it? That, so that's, that's, that, that's that spin where people say, "Well, Jesus said the poor shall always be with us. So why do we need to do more?" What Jesus <laughs> was saying, it was what was what what had happened was what Jesus was saying was that. People shall always be in need, and it is our responsibility to lift up and love and serve our brothers. There may always be somebody who's in need of something. He wasn't saying that we're going to have a perpetual perennial impoverished group, and we just need to like accept that and deal with it. He was talking more about the responsibility of one neighbor to another. I wonder about uh, a couple of things, though, when it comes to poverty. Like, okay, we understand that there are certain people undeniable are in certain situations because of poor choices but i wonder if that to me it seems like that's a minority of these people and i think the vast majority at least from what i've been able to ascertain 
are in those situations because of structural inequities that we have, uh, un, you know, un, unfair wages, uh, you know, uh, low and things of that nature. And then you have obviously increasing cost of living with wages not matching. So what are we doing as a society um, and even from legislative standpoint uh, to make sure that people are able to to just survive or even thrive and have access to for up, upward mobility? Drew, you're, you're, you're right on point. Just this week, uh, we recognized the that it, you know, I think it was just Tuesday, if I'm remembering correctly, that uh, a Black woman in America, on average, would have had to have worked all of last year and then up until Tuesday to have earned the same amount of money that a white man earns. A Black woman earns 62 to 64 cents on the dollar on average as compared to a white man. The white woman is at about 79 cents. The point of that is simply that black women on average are in lower wage, they are paid less wages, and then many of them are in lower wage jobs. And that comes down to job segregation, that often black women are essentially marketed and, and, and feared towards lower paying jobs, right? We're talking about jobs in retail, hospitality, childcare, early childhood education in the main. And what happens is that you take that coupled with the, like you take the, the job segregation, the low wages, and then you couple that with the fact that the black woman in at least 60% of households is the only breadwinner, right? Not just, you know, the primary, but the only breadwinner, right? right. In 80%, she is one of the primary breadwinners in 80% of households, but in 60%, she's the only breadwinner. So you take that with her lower wages and now she's raising kids. Our children are living in poverty. One in four black children living in poverty compared to less than one in 10 white children. So the point that I'm making with all of this is that it is structural. It dates back to how we value the work in this nation of certain people and then how we steer Mm -hmm. certain people in certain communities into certain low-wage jobs. It's structural in nature. And if we don't value certain roles and pay them fairly, then people aren't going to get ahead. So we need to be centered and focused on fair pay, equity in pay, and paying like you know, self-sufficient, sustainable wages. In this mm -hmm. nation, we don't do that. And Karen's heard me talk about this before. The government discounts what it takes to live in America with this antiquated dated federal poverty level that says if you're a family of four making mm -hmm. anything above $26,000, you're technically not poor. They do that so that they can then suppress the wages because $15 an hour equates to 30,000 a year. So if somebody's making $15 an hour and that's not even the federal wage, but right. if, if two people in a household, $7.25 an hour is the federal minimum wage. You got two people in the household, then together they'd be making about thirty thousand a year. That's above what the federal government government decides poverty, what poverty looks like. Mm. You do that, you get to keep suppressing wages because people are above that amount, and then you don't have to pay what you need to in terms of income supports. You don't have to raise wages, and you have this continual, perpetual lower class. Wow, I see. That's the thing, man. Another thing about it is you see how it's almost cyclical too. Because if you have poverty, we also understand that in poverty, poverty is what is immediately affixed 
to things like crime and, and things of that nature. So if you are, it's, it's poverty, it's not race, it's not, it's literally poverty that, that causes that environment. If you live in an area where maybe there are acts of violence or, or crime in that way, that traumatizes children. These same children then have to have to go to school and try to learn with that trauma that they actually yep. were suffering and being exposed to. We have a Surgeon General here in California, her name is Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. Um, she actually specializes in childhood trauma and she actually highlighted these about you know, like over a decade ago and just her work is amazing. But she was understanding that, yeah, you know, especially black children, kids like us in these classrooms, they're trying to learn, but you can't because I'm traumatized. I'm eight years old and I've seen things. And so, and then, well, you're not able to learn. You're not able to, to keep up with things. And next thing you know, less your chance to go to college, less your chance to, to get those higher paying jobs and it's cyclical and it keeps going and going. And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. They've done some research, you're, you're spot on, and they, they have now termed it adverse childhood experiences. Trauma associated with poverty. Trauma associated with having a family member, a father or mother who's been imprisoned. Trauma associated with, um, you know, perhaps having witnessed domestic violence mental health and how all of these things build. And these are stressors that are in our black and brown communities. And as you said, Drew, I mean, some of it is choices, yes, Karen, but a lot of it is structural racism that has undergirded all this and we're living in it and then it gets manifested. I mean, one of the reasons why we got so many people struggling, black and brown people right now through COVID and having these problems around, um, you know, being evicted from their homes and the like, is because of these low wages that did not allow people to save for a rainy day. Mm -hmm. So we've got low wages, you know, we've got we've got black women in America. And Karen, this is where this it, you know, some people are making bad choices, some people are trying and trying to get ahead and they can't. We have black people, black women in America, who've earned master's degrees, who are being paid less than white men with just high school diplomas. We've got black women working two and three jobs in social work, in childcare, as home health aides and the like. And they are eligible for the same benefits of the people that they're caring for because the government has suppressed their wages. So these are people trying to get ahead. I, as you're talking though, I also know a lot of us don't value ourselves enough to demand the things that we need to have, right? So it's also, cultural but uh you know we don't have the resources the the human capital around us to tell us you know if you're going into you know how folk go to you you went to a very prestigious school and in that community there's an expectation when you go to these schools that the, this is what you, and you you talk right so you know i'm gonna get out get out of school and make this salary because that's the going rate and i feel like we don't we don't share enough and then we don't push one another enough to do more. And I and I feel like, you know, the role here on this show is to not provide any um, excuses. Because I think also people, you know, want well, the reason is racism. Yeah, there's racism. Yet in 1912, there was a man called Robert Church Sr. who was able to fund <laughs> a lot of things, uh, one generation out of enslavement. And Mary Ellen Pleasant, I mean, they were, you know, those are anecdotal, but there were a lot of people who figured it out right out of bondage. We are not in bondage right now. So I think that there's resources, the government. Yeah, I mean, the New Deal sucked for us, but now those same programs are there. Right. And we just talked about the house. There's housing money right now in every municipality that people are not applying for. 
Right. The PPP, right. a lot know, of I think small I, businesses I agree didn't. with you. I agree with you, but I think that this is where critical race theory comes in. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, lawyer. Hold on. <laughs> and I think this is where, and I believe this is where critical race theory comes in. And, 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 and it is what is making it, it's, it's, it's threatening to powers that be to teach critical race theory because what critical race theory helps people to appreciate, Black persons to appreciate is that just you know, going back to what Drew was saying a few minutes ago, so much of what we've experienced as people is structural. It's like structurally based. And once you begin to appreciate, critical race theory is an empowering tool. That's what it is. You know, yes, hands down, it's an empowering tool. Once I understand that racism in America is more than a one-to-one -one relationship, it's more than my neighbor doesn't like me and my family because we're black and it's biased, you know, and, and, and bigoted because we're black. No, it's a system that was constructed beginning with the founding of this society and the founding of America with the United States Constitution that said that blacks were three-fifths of a person. Once I understand that, and I understand that the laws that you know, emanated from the United States Constitution, because essentially our government is nothing but, our society is nothing but laws, policies, and programs that emanate from this, you know, this United States Constitution. Whether you're talking about a state constitution or a local city charter, it all began with the United States Constitution. So if I begin to appreciate that society was structured in a way to discount me and essentially count me out, then I begin to understand it's not that I'm less capable. It's not that I'm less worthy. It's not just that it's like, you know, like, like it's, it's the neighbor over here who doesn't like me. It's the system is designed to work against me. Once I understand that, it's not that I get to sit back and go, oh, well, I don't have a chance because the system is stacked against me. No, rather I say, oh, it's not about what I, that I'm less than or I'm not capable. It's I've got to fight this system and I've got to go harder to overcome it, to confront it and overtake it. And so that's why I call it an empowering tool. Once mm -hmm. I understand what has happened here, then I'm better positioned to do something about it. My daddy used to say all the time, gain knowledge, gain power. Once you understand what you're dealing with and what a white America wants you to do is to continue to believe that the reason you can't get ahead is because you're less than, you're not as intelligent, you're not as capable. No, this system is structured in such a way for you not to, not an excuse not to do what you need to do. But once sure. you know what you're dealing with, then you can deal better. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> I've like billions <laughs> other stories that I wanted to talk with you about. But before I let you go, um, there was a, a race in Ohio uh, on Tuesday that that uh, Chantel Brown won at 11th mm -hmm. Congressional District. That's right. Um, but that race was not for me about the congressional seat as much as it was a, like a, this, this battle line that's drawn between quote unquote progressives and quote unquote establishment Democrats, which I'm, I, I don't want to lean into at all. Cause I think, again, these are, these are paper, paper balloons that people are trying to figure out how to, so w what are your thoughts on that? Um, you first, Jennifer. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. And you know, I, I saw it play out in Ohio and then we've got a similar narrative that's going on here where I am in New York City around our Democrat nominee for mayor, Eric Adams, where people are saying that, you know, Eric Adams, like Chantal, got in 
because it's a pushback on the progressive. I'm not so sure. I think people today are voting for a variety of reasons. I think people are voting a lot of demographic politics. I think people have, uh, I think you got a lot of progressive, uh, dare I say, white liberals who are white liberals in general trying to show that they're not, uh, you know, that they're not uh, racist and that they will put certain people into office. I don't think we've got a referendum there or in New York, in Ohio or in New York on progressive politics and a pushback. I, I just don't think it's that simple. And I think we're gonna have to wait and see. Well, I'll say this. I think after the other night, I think Jadakus need to run for mayor of New York, but um, <laughs> just that versus, but um, oh no, honestly gosh. and truly, <laughs> you know how to slip it in there. No, I think that also, um, I, I think that the thing that's really hurting uh, politics and that, that line of demarcation between quote unquote progressive and quote unquote establishment, which is amazing because the establishment of, of, of America is white supremacy, not black, not black people. So I don't know how we got thrown to that, but in any event, um, I, you know, I think that it's, it's this absolutism that is, that is overtaking everything. Yeah. And I think maybe a lot of that has to do with the age of social media. And it's like, well, you, if, 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 if it's all of this or it's all of that, there's no nuance. There's no, well, let's see, you know, okay. Maybe I disagree on some of your views, but we agree mostly on these points. So let's find a way to work together. Let's know we want mm -hmm. all or nothing. There was an opinion article that came out that said, usually when you put up and you say all or nothing, you might end up you most of the time walking away with nothing. Um, and so, you know, I think that people, are, th this idea that incremental change is somehow evil and some sort of, uh, you know, trope to, to hurt you and keep you down, I think that's, that's wrong. Every, all of our changes have always been incremental, step by step. Yeah, and, and um, I, so I, I think that uh, that's really what I would love to see us grow out of. I hope it's a temporary trend and I hope that uh, we get to a point where we say, hey, look, you know, I think, you know, 50 Cent, also another dude from New York, he said, Slow dough is better than no dough. So I think that, yo, you know, let's move forward, even if it's a couple of inches. I just quoted 50 Cent in the policy <laughs> discussion. That's pretty dope. But yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I think at, at some point, Carol, we should talk about whether or not, with all that we're seeing uh, in Washington, D.C. and around the country these days, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, playing with the, the question of whether our democracy is at risk or is it operating just as it was intended to do? Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.